what were the who were the Ostudin and what happened to them and how did native Munich German Jews relate to them? So the Ostudin, as they were called and actually called themselves at the time, um, were East European Jews. And what the term usually signified for those Jews who did not have German citizenship. Some of them were actually born already in Germany, but uh, you didn't have a birthright for citizenship at the time in Germany. So some of them were second generation, but most of them may be first generation, who came from Galicia, which was Austria before World War I, who came from Hungary. Some of them came from Russia, um, and among the Jewish population of Munich, they counted about 20 to 25% of the population. Um, They were overall, not all of them, overall more traditional than the German Jews. Um, Some of them spoke Yiddish, some of them still were Orthodox and had their Stiblach, their little shuls where they uh, would pray instead of the big synagogues. Um, uh, They often had little shops where they sold uh, goods and not the the bigger and more established stores. Um, that was overall, and I'm generalizing, obviously, the East European Jewish population um, of, of immigrants and their children. Um, how were they looked, to, uh, how were they seen by the German Jews or by the Munich Jews? I wouldn't generalize there either. Sure, there's a lot of like looking down on them, they're the poor brothers or cousins from the East. But there was also increasingly, even before World War I, but especially after World War I, a certain fascination with them. Um, it was led by somebody who also played a role, by the way, in Munich at the time, another important German-Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber. Martin Buber popularized the Hasidic stories before World War I, and with this came a romanticization or almost idealization of East European Jews as well, as the authentic Jews, as the real Jews. The Jews, German Jews, had one speed, maybe our great-grandfathers, they would say. Martin Buber played a role, just to mention that, because he was a very close friend of Gustav Landauer. And he visited Munich on the invitation of Landauer in February of 1919, um, he actually left the day, um, he, he only heard about this uh, on the train station on his way back, and the, the same day Eisner was assassinated. Uh, and he wrote to Landauer, he said, Landauer, you have to, um, you know, the, you know." he wrote, in, in not to Landauer, sorry, to his son-in-law, this is really a uh, a, a huge Jewish tragedy. Landauer told Buber, you have to write this story, the Jewish story of the revolution. And that's how they saw it. Landauer himself, unfortunately, was also brutally murdered uh, after the um, Second Council Republic um, was defeated in May of 1919. And, and what was the state of anti-Semitism, you can use that phrase, in Munich at that time, were there there concern yet? Yeah, so um, 
I, I like the phrase uh, which was used uh, by the Moscow chief rabbi in Russia, where he said, the Trotskys make the revolution and the Bronsteins pay the price for it. Of course, that was Trotsky's actual Jewish-sounding name. And what it means is that Eisner's and Landauer's make the revolution and uh, Cohen's and, you know, Levy's and Frankel's as they were in Munich, they pay the price for it. That was the feeling of many in the Jewish community. Now, first of all, as I said initially, most Munich Jews were not socialists. They were also not right-wing nationalists, but they were moderate uh, some of them still after 1918, pro-monarchy, uh, and others were mainstream or maybe moderate social democrats. So they weren't like in the same political camp as those prominent Jews now, who, by the way, Eisner and Landauer, I mean, none of them were from Munich or Bavaria. They were all from Germany, even though they were accused of being Austrian, of being East European Jews. They were all from Germany, but not from Bavaria. And the Bavarian Jews and the Munich Jews in particular um, were afraid if this experiment fails, if Eisner and Landauer, and then later there was even a more radical communist Jewish leader, um, Eugen Levinet, who led the Second Council Republic in April of 1919, if that fails, we will have to pay the price. We Jews will have to pay the price. And they were right. And even some of the Jewish revolutionaries knew that and noticed that. And um, Ernst Toller, one of the leaders of this revolution, socialist, put out big leaflets and flyers against anti-Semitism. He noticed that anti-Semitism and he said, we will, you know, we will uh, persecute the anti-Semites, which was interesting by a Jewish leader. Uh, so it was a very particular situation. And the Jewish, com the established Munich Jewish community, I would even go as far as to say, besides the right-wing anti-Semites, nobody hated the Jewish revolutionaries as much as the established Jewish community because they feared it would backlash. And now in, in 1923, we have uh, Hitler's unsuccessful beer hall pooch. What was the effect um, of the putsch on the Munich Jewish community? And secondly, why already by then did noted author Thomas Mann say that Munich was already Hitler's city? So if I can go back for a second, when Absolutely. I wrote the book, I really wanted to write about the Jewish revolutionaries because it's a fascinating topic by itself. And the more and more I got into the archival material and uh, um, and, and the newspapers, I realized you can't stop in 1919 when the revolution was over um, because now Munich became the capital of anti-Semitism in Germany. Munich, that was so much more liberal than Berlin before World War I, now becomes the capital of right-wing reaction um, of of very conservative backlash. Um, and that's not just the Nazi movement. It starts with a much uh, more moderate conservative right-wing forces that also see um, or, or try to uh, aim at Jews as scapegoats. Uh, there was a prime minister at the 
twice actually called Gustav von Kahr, who twice tries to expel not all, but some of the East European Jews of the Ostjuden from Bavaria. And then already in the early 20s, we see the rise of Hitler. Now we have to realize we don't know really Hitler's political views before 1919 because he never published anything. He starts to become active exactly after this experiment is over. And in the fall of 1919, he publishes his first article. And in 1920, he emerges as the leader of this tiny right-wing splinter party called the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which he called actually that way, recalled it that way, and renamed it that way. And, um, and he becomes the uh, focus of a more and more radicalizing right-wing anti-Semitic political faction. And you already have a lot of the people who will later be uh, around in, in the very close circles around him in Munich at the time. Uh, Rudolf Hess is later deputy, Goering, uh, Rosenberg, the main ideologue, um, they all are in Munich at the time and influenced by some of the other right-wing circles there. By 1923, his uh, Nazi party, uh, as we would call it today, um, became already a major force. He, um, not, not, not necessarily because it wasn't the largest party in the city or in Bavaria, but the loudest one. They, he, he was omnipresent almost. He was everywhere seen. His speeches were, um, uh, he was, he was celebrated as this orator, but he also, um, made his way into parts of the middle and upper middle classes of and upper classes of Munich society, especially interestingly, some of the women uh, were very fond of him at the time. And uh, he made his inroads into Munich society. So for give one example, in January of 1923, um, there was a, um, very famous, one of the most famous German plays of the Enlightenment period, Nathan the Wise, which uh, actually also pledges for the tolerance for all religions, including Judaism, was made into, turned into a movie. It was shown with a lot of success in Berlin. It could not be shown in a Munich cinema because the Nazi party put so much pressure on the movie theater owners uh, that they would break their windows, they would destroy their cinemas if they showed that movie. So the influence in Munich was already very much there. Jews, I mean, didn't happen every day, but it happened. The Jews were beaten up in the streets, some very prominent Jews. Um, so Thomas Mann, the most prominent German writer in the 1920s, won the Nobel Prize, 1929, he already published an article, by the way, in an American uh, newspaper in June of 1923, calling Munich the city of Hitler. Now, Hitler had no political office, uh, but he dominated, in a way, the political discourse. And then on November, on November 8th, 1923, 
he tried to come to power through a coup, through the beer hall putsch. In a beer hall, it was Munich after all, um, he failed um, because the uh, he did not get the support of the strong men in the state as he thought he would. <clears throat> uh and and he was arrested um but reading the accounts of this first november pogrom in 1923 if you read it without the date on the newspaper some of it sounds already like 1938 15 years later the same night same day um when jews were um nazis Brought into uh, they 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 uh, made it into houses of Jews at night. Took Jews out in their night clothes. Um, <clears throat> they would smash windows of Jewish shops. Also, socialist like newspapers and so on. So these were the events of November 1923. <clears throat> Hitler was arrested, um, but he got a very mild, very mild punishment. And I think it, it was for about a year. And I think that's what we, that's a lesson we have to draw. If somebody, you know, tries to attack democracy as he did Weimar Germany, um, and is not punished adequately, he'll come back. If you compare the Munich Jewish community to the Berlin Jewish community, as these events were happening 1919 and 1923, First of all, did the two communities work together to try to combat the anti-Semitism that was on the rise? And how were the communities different in how they approached that issue? Well, I, I think we have to keep in mind the differences a little bit more than maybe the commonalities. Um, first of all, the Munich Jewish community was about 12,000 people, and the Berlin Jewish community, about 170,000. So it's a huge difference. Uh, but there was another difference, and we often forget that when we talk about Germany, Germany was a um, was composed of so many different states with very different cultural backgrounds. And there was a uh, historical, I would even say animosity, between Prussia and Bavaria. Now, Berlin was the capital of Prussia, Munich the capital of Bavaria, and the Prussian Jews felt Prussian, and the Bavarian Jews felt Bavarian. And even among the Zionists, one in, in, in important document uh, I, I, I came across once, uh, interesting one, um, was uh, uh, how a Zionist from Berlin characterized a fellow Zionist from Munich, saying, "Oh, those Bavarian Zionists—they have—they have." They're breathing too much Bavarian air. They're so Bavarian. And the Bavarian Jews spoke their own dialect, sometimes not so even easy to understand for the Berlin Jews. So there were differences. Of course, when it came to anti-Semitism, they would see eye in eye. They would, they would try to fight it together. <clears throat> Let me actually go beyond Munich and Berlin. When there was anti-Semitism in the streets and threats to expel East European Jews from Bavaria. Um, it went the tr- attempts to defend the Jews of Munich went way beyond um, Munich. Uh, one of the problems in Munich, or, or, or beyond Berlin, also one of the problems in Munich was that those authorities, the Jews could turn to, had become infiltrated by anti-Semitism. 
definitely the courts. Uh, you could see the very um, lenient sentences for the right-wing extremists. The police, for a while, the police chief of Munich was an ardent follower of Hitler, an early Nazi before 1923, um, and others remained in the police force who were known as anti-Semitic. The church, well, the church wasn't pro-Nazi, the Catholic church, we talk about Munich, but they, as we know, the very important cardinal, uh, archbishop and cardinal Michael Fallhaber, uh, had very deep traditional anti-Jewish sentiments. Uh, and uh, so had Ju- the conservative politicians who were now the leaders. So they couldn't turn to them. Whom did they turn to in order to avoid the expulsion of East European Jews? They turned to the consulates, the Austrian consulate, the Polish consulates. And interestingly, they were the only ones who helped, not because they loved the Jews so much, but they didn't want them to be expelled to their own country. So they said, if you expel our citizens from Bavaria, we will expel Bavarian citizens, German citizens to Bavaria. And that what stopped it. But interestingly, um, and that connects the Berlin Munich, completes the Berlin Munich connection. They also appealed to American authorities because there were many American Jews whose roots were in Bavaria. Important, some of the very important Jewish families in America. And some of them had direct connections to the foreign, to the State Department. Uh, Some turned actually to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State wrote to the ambassador in Berlin, what's going on in Germany? Are Jews really like, and, 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 and what's going on in Munich? And the ambassador of Berlin wrote to the consul general in Munich. And that's where we see an interesting connection, how uh, because of the outcry of some of the American Jews of German descent, um, the American um, diplomats in Germany became active. And by the way, in some of their internal correspondence, you can also detect anti-Semitism within the State Department saying, you know, the Jews, they're all socialists and, and they, they're foreigners and, and some of the arguments the right wing in Germany uses. But overall, they try to also come out against uh, any kind of violent anti-Semitism. As you uh, teach, and, and especially to young people today, this 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 topic, um, what's the message that you try to bring across, and why should young people study the, these post World War One events that occurred in a city such as Munich? Um, well, I, I admit, when I wrote the book, I did not realize that it would actually become more relevant to American society today and more relevant than I would like it uh, as when I wrote, started to write it. Um, I wrote my introduction to the American edition of the book um, in January of 2020. And, um, and it's in January of 2021, sorry. And that's, uh, and, and that was, uh, something I would not think I'd ever see in America, that there would be 
and insurrection and there will be threats to democracy in different ways, of course, than in Germany of the 1920s, but in ways that remind us of it. And I think if we look at the German the German history of the 1920s, um, and if we see how weak German democracy proved in the end of defending itself, we might draw a lesson from that. Democracy in Germany, as in so many other countries where that happened, did not collapse because there were enemies to democracy or there were those who attacked democratic principles, but because the defenders of democracy weren't strong enough. And I would go one step further um, because those, because somebody like Hitler and the Nazi party needed allies to come to power. They, of course, didn't get these allies in the left-wing circles, um, but they themselves, the Nazi party never had more than uh, around 44% in, in, even in their in already rigged elections in March of 1933. They never had more than like 39% in really totally democratic elections. So they needed others on the conservative side who would help them. Um, and uh, I'm afraid without naming names here, that's what we see a little bit here. People who think, you know, we can help those who are a threat against democracy because others we hate even more. And in the end, um, we will be able to, and that was the word used by the conservatives in response to Hitler, we can contain them. We can come back to power. The conservative circles can come back to power um, by using the extreme right wing, the threats to democracy. And in the end, we will just use them. Of course, the opposite was the case. They were being used. And that's how democracy ended. Not because there was a Hitler and there was uh, Nazis in Germany, but because those who uh, there were, unfortunately enough, uh, who were not Nazis, who actually despised Hitler, who helped him on his way to power. So that's one of the lessons we can draw. And of course, there are many others with respect to anti-Semitism, with respect to the, um, unfortunately, we see that today too, with the feeling how accepted a Jewish community is. And uh, suddenly this big feeling begins to erode and to, and, 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 and Jews feel more insecure in society. Again, I'm not drawing parallels saying it's the same. <laughs> Um, as you know, uh, more important people have said, history um, doesn't repeat itself, but history rhymes. And uh, if we look at uh, precedents of how democracy was threatened, how anti-Semitism rose, we can learn a lot from this episode uh, in Munich, the very city where Hitler rose to power after World War One. This has been absolutely fascinating. We can certainly go on and on, but. Uh... Again, um, a tremendous book in Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution and the Rise of Nazism. Um, it's, it's really a, a very readable H-turner and uh, urge all our listeners and viewers to, um, to take a look at it and, and read it. There's a lot to be learned from it. Uh, Professor Brenner, again, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you.